So we're starting a brand new sermon series this morning. I'm super excited about it, and we're, I'm eager to see where it goes. It's going to be about four weeks long. Um, if you care about these kind of things, if you're a planner, we're going to be about four weeks in this series called Battle Royale. We're going to do f- like four weeks, I think, in Thanksgiving, and then we're into Christmas. Can you believe it? Christmas? That's absolutely crazy to, to me that we're there. Um, and so that season is coming up as well. So I've been wanting to do this series for a while, and, and it was kind of like a mishmash of ideas. We're kind of consolidating into a, a, a thought together. You know, a few of us have been thinking and talking about it. I guess I wanted to start with a question. I, I guess I'll say this first, right? It seems to me that, our, that there's some kind of like elevated hostility. Like this is an understatement, you know I mean? Like I feel like everyone is on the fringe of just crazy arguments and fights and hostility. I even told you, like, I've been kind of into the fight scene lately for some reason, and maybe that's some kind of subconscious aggression. I don't even know. And so you, you look at um, what's going on in the world, and you get stressed out, and we all watch the same news cycles, and we all hear the same stories, and everybody's kind of uh, uh, upset or up in arms about things. And it made me start thinking about our responsibility in those conversations as believers in Jesus Christ, right, and what that looks like and, and why that would matter. And I had a question, and this is the question I want to start with today. This is over for the series, by the way, not for this morning's topic. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. But overall, a question, my question is this. What are the choices that we believe we must make that end up keeping us far from Jesus? Like, what are the things that we think we have to make a decision, we have to have a position on that, that ends up keeping us far from Jesus? Or maybe a more important question is, Is that a necessary choice? Is it a required choice? The series, I want to talk about some overarching threads for it, maybe to get you a feel for the vibe of it, because it's going to be different, I think, than what we've done before. I always say that, but they're always a little different, you know. This isn't a book study. It's a topical study, and it's going to be a little different. But one of the things, one of the overarching themes I want us to think about, and this is going to be big words, but they won't be big words the whole series, I promise you that, is epistemological humility. One of my mentors taught me the concept of epistemological humility whenever I was going to school to be a pastor. And basically, it's a fancy word, and what it means is having some humility about how you know what you know, right? Just being humble about how you know what you know. I guarantee you in a room like this, with us gathered here this morning, there are people in this room that know things that I don't know and that you don't know. And there's someone else, as smart as you are, that knows something that you don't know. And a few of you are probably thinking, Not likely, (laughs) but I can tell you there are. But there's a reality of how we come to know things which is um, unique to each person's journey. So you have exposures and experiences and you, and you have come to conclusions and beliefs about things because of your life experiences. And I mean very practical, not theological, theoretical even at this point, but like practical things, how to do stuff in your life. But how did you learn that? How did you come to believe that? Why do you believe that to be true? And have you experienced it, practiced it, and therefore have some confidence that it is, in fact, true? And so this concept of epistemological humility means that we just have some humility. By the way, and this will apply to all sides of the conversations that I'm going to have, right? This is the funny thing about it. I'm talking to you because you're a church and you're in church and you're, the, you're Christians. Most of you are Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. And so I'm talking to you about us having epistemological humility, Right? But everyone ought to have it. There ought to be an overarching kindness toward each other about how we've come to know what we know. Um, not an arrogance or a self, uh, self-deceit about how, uh, how much we've figured out on our own. Here's another overarching concept. All truth is God's truth, 
right? That's something else I learned while I was going to school to become a pastor. All truth is God's truth. We ought to affirm truth where it's found in life. And that might sound weird to you, but I've seen so many conversations, public conversations, like very loud conversations, where people won't give an inch because if I give an inch, I'm going to lose. What? I don't know if you know what the concept of battle royale is, right? I know there's a few like cultural things right now, battle royale, but it's this idea that only one survives, you know? Fight to the death. <laughs> one will stand at the end, you know? And we have that concept that if we were to give an inch to someone, if we were to acknowledge, yes, that's correct, that we would ultimately not win and therefore be the loser. And they would go on to the next round to see if they can defeat everyone else until they were the last one standing. But the truth is that all truth is God's truth, and God is truth, and therefore we can affirm truth where it's found. We can do that. We can acknowledge it and not be ashamed or afraid of that. That's the second. Here's a third overarching concept. I'm going to cover these a few times, right? But I'm going to talk about this. This is a little weird. It's called an, an, an improv uh, mentality. These conversations are not going to be so much no, but conversations. <laughs> Instead, they're going to be yes and conversations. That's how to postmological humility. You find something you can agree with. You go, yes, and this other thing is true. Yes, and, right? There's a tendency we have to say no. And the minute you say no, you've, you've ended the conversation. Now, maybe it's for a good purpose. Maybe you need to end that conversation. But if your intention, and my intention is to influence people and to engage people and to have conversations with people, listen, that might actually lead to conversion to the truth, we ought to be concerned about those moments where we're going to sever that relationship and say, no, but this, right? Instead of yes and See, there's always some truth to be affirmed. There's always something there that we can hold on to because all truth is God's truth. And we're going to talk about that today. God's divine revelation to the world. Here's the fourth. We ought to be thoughtful and biblically conformed people. Both. Thoughtful people and biblically conformed. Many times, the, the um, others would, uh, those outside of the church or non-believers would chastise us or as as unthinking people. And that, what a shame. No, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. <laughs> Be thinking people, but biblically conformed. We make no apologies for conforming to the text that God has revealed for truth, but we aren't unthinking. We ought not to be. I'm not saying sit in the corner and think up theories and all this stuff, but you know, have a thoughtful conversation. Oh, what's the scripture say? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That does not sound like our cultural engagement right now. <laughs> so slow down. Thoughtfulness and biblical conformity. And then we need to drive conversations. And by God's grace, conversions, which is not our work. It's not that we do save people. We don't save people, but we, we proclaim the good news to others that they can either accept or reject it. What a profound reality. And so today we're going to actually cover the topic of science versus faith. The first battle royale, right? Death to the end. And, uh, and so we're going to do that together. I'm going to ask that you would, as we get started this morning, turn, if you brought a Bible, to Genesis 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one off the chair row. I know we've talked about this text a few times, but I want us to hear it this morning in all of its glory. Genesis 1, it's on uh, page 1. My clicker is not clicking again for some reason up here. Sorry, if we can probably get my 
There you go. Thank you. Um, Genesis 1. It's the very, very start of the book. It's a great place to start studying God's Word. This is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered out to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry land, ground, dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, and according, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and the years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the, great, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. So to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water from team with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and the living, every living and moving thing with which the water teams according to their kinds with every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water of the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, living stock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that had the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all 
their vast array. I'm going to do what we always do at Family Bible. I want to pray that God would give us revelation from his word and revelation from his world this morning. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance to be together in your name and to celebrate who you are and what you've revealed to us. We pray this morning as we come into your house to worship you, your, your place of worship, just a condition of our heart and our soul that we're listening to you as our teacher, that you would indeed uh, teach us in those areas we need to know you, that you would conform us to your will and purposes, that you would reveal truth to us, Father, that we'd be known as um, people of truth. Father, would you uh, do work this morning through the uh, scriptures that we've read and through the other scriptures we're going to consider today? Would you do your work through the power of the Holy Spirit? We can often be uh, so arrogant and full of ourselves. May it not be so this morning. May we humbly submit to you and learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's a beautiful, uh, poetic almost, yes, narrative of God's creation. I mean, it's something that's like so, so non-exotic. It's something that so many of us have heard so many times, right? I mean, even if you've not been in church a lot, you've probably heard the creation narrative in some form or fashion. You, you've probably heard people argue over uh, that conversation about uh, how everything was, was created. And, uh, and then here we have this beautiful uh, uh, poetry about the creation narrative. If you've studied the scriptures at all, you know that, that there's this, they call it the second creation narrative that ha- starts almost immediately then in chapter 2 of Genesis where it tells a story again in a different perspective. And it's like, and again, the creation narrative once more, not with that expanse and, and universal size perhaps, but, uh, but still the nitty-gritty of how God made things and what, what he did. And it's a conviction that we have. So why would we even bring this up? Like, why even cover this as a topic? What does it matter? And by the way, this has been on the radar for years to talk about this. I want to tell you a couple of stories. I don't know if you guys are like me. Um, I hope that you are in this way, that you've probably gone to school in your life. <laughs> Anyone? Gone to school? Yes. <laughs> yes, you have. Um, but does anyone remember science class? Anyone remember science class? You remember it? Yeah. Anyone remember it fondly? Yeah, all right, a couple. See, that's what those are scientists. <laughs> no, those are scientists. Anyone remember the Bunsen burners? <laughs> I remember those fondly. <laughs> that was my favorite thing in science class. I remember that in high school. The fact that there was gas coming out of a pipe in the wall and we could turn it on and light a flame to it with permission of the teacher seemed insane. <laughs> it seemed insane. And no matter what our experiments were doing, uh, they were always going wrong in some way. The poor frogs that we dissected or the poor, you know, the, the, th- the things we cooked up in the beakers. I mean, it was, all, it was just, I can't imagine why that's a good idea to put 30 students in a room with one adult and flames everywhere and boiling water and glass and, uh, and call it wise learning. <laughs> Lots of shenanigans in science class. But we all have those common experiences, Right? I mean, we've all been um, taught this methodology. I I want you to, first of all, appreciate how unique that is in the history of man, that we were brought together in a way to learn like that, that there there were these tools that we were given as very young people, 15, 16, 17. I mean, there's some, you know, we're teaching science, of course, all the way down to, like, kindergarten. But that's hands-on experimentation to try things, to to test them out, to see how they work, to write notes, to have thoughts, to, to, to imagine, to think, or to hope about what could be. It's a unique thing to be exposed to that. Um, we were taught in a system that says that we have the power to understand the world around us, that we can discover things. And it was empowering. It was good, really good. But why preach about it then? 
So what? We've all the experiences. Science is a thing. It's awesome. We all know that, how that works. But why talk about it? It's been on my heart for a while because, well, one of the things is when I went to school, we talked about this. It was a big deal, right? I went to school to be a pastor. About one of those objections to Christianity we often hear, right? As if science is against faith or faith in any faith, let alone or Christianity in particular. Um, the science refutes it in some way. And I've seen the other side of the argument too where, where people in, in the church say, um, oh, look, look, science is affirming Christianity as if, if that, that finally validates Christianity as being true and right and holy and good and proper. So why have this conversation at all? Well, the summer I was at camp and uh, we were doing uh, devotions. I had eighth grade boys. <laughs> we were on the rock pile. My favorite place to meet, by the way, and we always get kicked off of it because we're boys on the rock pile in the eighth grade, which means we throw rocks into the woods. <laughs> but what a great place for meditation and thought, you know, boys need to do that kind of stuff. And so we're all throwing rocks, including me, <laughs> into the woods. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and I said to the, the boys, I said, let me ask you a question. Um, I just want to get it out of the way right away. This is Monday. Uh, this has been Sunday afternoon, I think, right? Our first devotion. Our very first devotion this year. And we're talking about fruit of the Spirit. And I said, I just have to ask a practical question as we get started here. Um, how many of you are believing in Jesus Christ for salvation? That's exactly what I said to them. Yes, that nerdy and pastory. That's exactly what I said to those boys who were in the eighth grade. You know, remember the eighth grade, but are going into the eighth grade, by the way. They were seventh grade, going to eighth grade. They're just squirrely as all get out. And uh, they all go, and I went, and were like, six. I said, really? All of you are believing in Jesus Christ for salvation? And I didn't mean to be incredulous, but when I was in the eighth grade, I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, this is awesome that these kids have already believed in Jesus for salvation. Now we can get started talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I was stoked. And in the pause of my, of my shock at this, one of the boys said this. Well, yeah, I used to believe in Jesus, but then I believed in science for a while, but now I'm back to believing in Jesus. And I said, what? And they were just throwing rocks. And I said, how many of you believe that you have to choose between science or Jesus? And just like who is saved, every hand went up. We have to decide. I was just stunned. Stunned by that. And maybe you aren't as stunned as I was that that was the thing. But I couldn't believe it. Because I'm sitting there looking at these, these young men and thinking, if they have to somehow deny all of creation and all of discovery and all of science and all of wonder and all of awesome and everything that we look at, from microscopes to telescopes, if they have to deny that to believe Jesus, if that's the conundrum that they're in, we've lied to them. They've been lied to. I mean, the, the Bible starts with the story of God's creation. <laughs> you ought to look at the trees and go, wow. You ought to look at the insects and go, wow. And science certainly does that. So how do we get to that place where we can sort that stuff out? And maybe you're like that today, because those are conversations that adults are having. Like, and I'm, I'm not, I get it, it the life's complex, but listen, we ought to find a way to thread the needle there and not throw out everything for the sake of some things. And I think it's rooted in epistemological humility, by the way, for everyone involved. 
So let's do this. Let's talk about science and faith this morning. And let's talk about a few things. We affirm truth we can find it. So let's find some areas of overlap. Because there are tons of areas of overlap where both science and faith agree. I want to talk through those this morning. I'm going to try to be very fair to the science side because I'm not anti-science, and, but I'm also not a scientist in that way. Like, I don't get up and do, like, experiments every day. And, but I've worked with people, doctors. I've worked with um, um, research physicians. that They have actual really cool labs and, you know, DNA sequencing and all this kind of stuff that they were doing. I mean, and not, and I was just support for them, but still, I work with them, right? <laughs> it's like having a smart friend, you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, and so, uh, and I have uh, great respect, so I'm going to be, try to be really fair, really fair to um, this concepts and how we kind of, uh, what we agree on here. And then we're also going to find things that we don't agree on. Fair enough. And talk that through a little bit as well. So, here, here's a couple of things I have, I think, up here. Yes. The first, everything is glorious. I mean, everything is glorious, you know. Um, pretty sure that science, scientists or scientific mind people find everything overwhelmingly interesting, right? There's this curiosity that they have. There's this passion for truth that they have. They just can't wait to get in the lab and figure it out to discover things. I don't think they would call it glorious. They would call it awesome or beautiful or, um, you know, what are the words, you know, that they would, they would, they're just in awe of it. They're in awe of the patterns they find. They're in awe of the, of the intimacy of the universe. They're in awe of the expanse of the universe. I got to be in Florida this year, and I happened to be down there for a rocket launch. Wow! That's crazy that we're sending things into space. <laughs> the, the lights of the sky, as, the, as uh, Genesis tells us, we're sending things out there. It's just amazing. The scientific pursuit of how to propel things, of how to build things, the physics of it, the discovery of how, you know, uh, new ways of, of uh, propulsion and, and ways we can do things more efficiently, discoveries. It's amazing. It's, it's glorious. I think that it's unfair to them to say that they don't believe that that's true. Now, here's a funny thing. I've known people who were, who were scientifically minded who were afraid to admit that. That's awesome. Because they're afraid that you're going to interpret them in a way that they maybe believe that God is in it. We'll talk about that later. But they fundamentally believe that things are awesome, they're glorious, amazing. Well, guess what? Believers in the gospel believe that the magnitude of God's creation is overwhelming. Did you hear the testimony that we find in Genesis? God spoke, right? I mean, he said it, and it was so. These creation things, and there are affirmations we find. It's amazing when we just, when we go with, um, with, with uh, openness into uh, exploration, we find things affirmed that the scripture has said for thousands of years. Like, what is the scientific methods like since maybe, what, mid-1700s? Is that fair? 1600s, earliest, right? To, to think we could discover things in a certain way in, in the world. The scriptures are 2,000 years old, the New Testament, right? The Old Testament's older than that. And yet these things are recorded in the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I just recently heard, uh, and it's not all that helpful, but I just recently heard um, this thing about water. Because one of the things I've heard is like, oh, pfft, look, it says there's water above and water below. How simply is that, right? But guess what? They're just finding water all over the universe. Like, there are, scientists are amazed. We thought water was an earth thing. Water is everywhere. That freaks people out. Because they go, if there's water everywhere, there might be life everywhere. 
What's going on? Over and over again, our, our discovery is, um, affirms what's found in the, in the creative creation narrative that, that God created things. And, and I know that people don't want to go to that far blaming God for it. Okay, fair enough. We'll talk about that later. Believers uh, are amazed at, uh, at God's creation. Now, we already talked about um, uh, Genesis 1 and just the glory and the expanse. I mean, the, the things that crawl along the earth, the, the, team, the water teems with things and, and how um, even light and darkness, like the God revealed all these things. But I want to share with you um, also from the Gospel of John. And I'm going to turn there. You don't have to. We're going to stay in Genesis mostly. But I want to share this with you. Let's see if I can pull it up here. There we go. This is the way John, the gospel of John starts, right? To connect it all the way back to Genesis, very profoundly, the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then verse 3, through Him, that is the Word, all things were made, or God, by the way, it's equivalent. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then there's other things that are said there, right? But then let's jump down to uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And, and the reason that's such a profound thing that Scripture tells us is that it says that Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who is coming in the name of God, was the very one who is there in the beginning, right? The Word says what? In the beginning, God. Before anything was, God was there. Right? And then all of creation was made and the earth was formed and the, the stars were hung in this place and the animals were created. But in the beginning, God was there and the Gospel of John says, and that God is Jesus, the Word made flesh and was manifest among us. The glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, He knows how things are made. And so we, we find that same uh, principle then, not just in the Old Testament and the glory of God, because the Psalms are filled with the story of the beauty of creation as well, but in the New Testament, that Jesus himself and the entirety of the New Testament is rooted in the same glorious revelation from God's creation, that Jesus is revealed in that. It's a profound uh, reality. So we all agree that everything is glorious, right? Everything is worth looking into. How about this then? Categories and kinds. Categories and kinds. Um, this is something that uh, scientists uh, love to do. They love to log and catalog things, right? If you've ever seen, it's so funny because we've gotten so kind of snobby and knowledgeable these days with Google and the internet and everything like that, you know, that we can share knowledge. But people are out with just pen, pads and paper writing things down. And you might think, well, that season of life is over, right? Categories and kinds. But scientists will tell, tell you they're still discovering new things on the earth. They know that was here. <laughs> we have a tendency to act like all these discoveries are over. But they're not. Categories and kinds. That things are, are sorted out in a certain way. We might not always agree where they come from, but they, they all have like things, traits that they, they, they look kind of like. They, 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 uh, they act kind of alike. They behave in similar ways. And, and they, they write those things down and record them. I mention that because in the creation narrative, I'm sure that you caught it, but it says, uh, but this whole Genesis 1 is about categories and kinds, right? It separates things into light and darkness, first of all, a fundamental category. 
you know, darkness and light. And then it, and it um, talks about uh, things in the water and things in the sky, right? Things above the expanse of the sky and these kind of separations of, uh, I guess, earth and space, you would say. And then there's this very specific uh, reference in verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees in a land of its various kinds. And it goes on to say that the trees grow fruit that bear seeds of their various kind. And so this idea that there's an oak tree and a maple tree and another tree and a pine tree, you know what I mean? That there's these different kinds of trees. So much of what we've discovered in science has only been combining the things that God made like hybriding things. Now we have a new tree, or you have a new dog, a labradoodle. We got a labradoodle? <laughs> you combine things, but they're different. They were different kinds, and they're combined in new ways. Again, uh, let's say in verse uh, 24, God said, Let the li land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, uh, each according to its kind. That's an interesting thought. It separates between domestic and wild animals, right? You go, well, now wait a minute. Humans domesticated wild animals. Yeah, but there are still wild animals we don't domesticate, right? Like there are still, the truly wild animals aren't, they're crazy. Yes? <laughs> That's why you shouldn't have a pet tiger. Because they eat you, right? That's why it's a bad idea. And they're still uh, wild. They're not a house cat. They're, they're similar, not the same. Um, different animals according to its kind and, and um, God made wild animals livestock according to their kind and creatures that move along the ground and, and uh, um, birds in the air and we have all this kind of separation the, the, the livestock that the, and the, uh, the, the fish that teem in the seas different kind so we have that agreement that there are categories and kinds of things in life um, I remember whenever I was a kid there was that uh, little I'm going to date myself. I don't even care because you get to a certain age, you're like, whatever. But we used to see, like, um, one of these things is not like the other. Remember that song? One of these things is just not the same. I don't know if they still teach because that's not. I love that. I love that. Or I used to get that little uh, magazine that would have two pictures that looked exactly like almost. Anybody like those things? And you just look at them, find a the difference. You see, we're built to find differences. That's somehow we work in the world. What's the same and what's different? It's categories and kinds. And we can discover the reality of that. All right. How about this then? Here's a, here's, a third, here's a third thought. We have a need to know. We have a need to know. Um, this might, I'm going to switch a little bit here. We might we'll go uh, with the, the, the biblical witness first in this. But the first time that knowledge comes to mind for me after the creation narrative um, actually comes up, well, a couple of times, it comes up in, uh, in 2, chapter 15. I think I might have it up here. Let's see if I did. Nope, I didn't. Okay, I'll just read it to you. You can look at it if you want to. It's in uh, Genesis 2, 15. Yeah. It says this, The Lord God took the man and, and put him in the garden to work the land and care for it. And the Lord God made the man, or commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we know the story, right? But I want to jump ahead and just, and just look at what the word says. In chapter 3, verse, um, let's see here, verse 6. Um, this is after temptation. We'll just get into the actual, the, what happens. 
when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, that's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, uh, she took some of it and she ate. Also, she gave some to her husband who ate with her or who was with her and he ate as well. And so we know that that is a fundamental sin, right? That God says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they choose to eat. But I think it's interesting, there's a little sub-note here, that she thought it was good for gaining wisdom, which is not the same thing as knowledge. Wisdom is like prosperity. It's like success, you know? And she's like, if, and I'm not blaming Eve, by the way, because Adam was right there. So I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that. But she's there, and she's like, if I have it, if I eat it, I will succeed, or I will have prosperity. I'll have wisdom. What? Without God. You see, that's what's fundamentally happening there. It's not that the, the knowledge of good and evil in and of itself is bad. It's just bad for people, but it's, I'm going to get it and not need God anymore. I'm going I'm to have success without God. I'm going to have understanding without God. I'm going to have wisdom without God. Because that's fundamentally what's being said there. I'm going to cut God out. And so that's the fundamental sin. And therefore, some people can then take that and transpose that into this idea that all knowledge is evil somehow, which is not what the scriptures say at all. As a matter of fact, um, I just had it up on the screen here. But in Hosea, um, let me see here, Matt, 4, 6. This is what the word says. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And that means the, key, the root word there of knowledge is uh, yada, and it's a Hebrew word, and it, and it means, you know, to know, to know something. It's, it's very practical. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests, right? Um, because you have ignored the law of your God, I also ignore your children. And I want to leave that in context, because I was going to just take out the top part, you know, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, but I didn't want to be unfair to the text, because you might say, well, he means knowledge of God. You know, the prophet means you're not acknowledging God, but listen, uh, there's a fundamental connection between knowing how the world works and knowing God. And the people are perishing for lack of knowledge. That's a real fact. That's a real fact. You'll, you'll know that uh, for years, people died of very simple diseases because they didn't know how the world worked. Right? Very practical reality of people perishing for lack of knowledge. There are still people in the world that perish for lack of knowledge. They just don't understand how things actually do work, right? Well, it's obvious then if this is true that believers ought to pursue knowledge, that it's a good and right thing to want to be knowledgeable, um, that the same is true for sci scientifically minded people. They pursue knowledge. They have an insatiable appetite for knowledge, right? A deep understanding. And this is what then they try to explore and discover, is knowledge. How do things work? What makes things tick? Right? So we have agreement there. Knowledge is a good thing. We ought to want it. We ought to want to understand how it works. And even God says it's good to know. It's good to know. Here's the fourth. And we're talking about two objections. We ought to test stuff. <laughs> we ought to test stuff. <laughs> So based, I had to actually look this up again to, to confess that to you honestly because I had forgotten. I knew there was a scientific method. I could tell you the basic of the scientific method and some of you are probably younger and you used to go, I can tell you the scientific method. I'm sure you could. Um, but based on, I kind of threw it down as like disagreement a little bit, six or seven steps of scientific method. But here's what we're taught, to be young scientists, observe things, right? 
just like that. I was just doing it just now. I was observing you, okay? Um, and then uh, ask a question. Usually that question is something like, why is it that way? Or what makes that work? Or how, how, is this, how is this thing happening? Now here's the third step. Make a hypothesis. Or develop a theory. Or uh, guess. <laughs> right? How does it work? I'm going to guess how it's going to work. Theorize. Then the fourth step, test it. Okay? So I think this is how it works. Do a test and see if that's how it works. Uh, the fifth is to analyze your results. You know, observe what happens in the test. And then the sixth, I, I put it this way, believe your results. But I know some people would say, oh, don't be, don't use the B word with me. Okay, so uh, uh, what's another word for it? Have faith. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Believe what you see, and then the seventh is try again. It has to be repeatable. That's the big thing about scientific method. You have to be able to repeat it. If it happens once in an experiment, you can't do it again, it doesn't count, right? Um, so, but there's that moment where you kind of go, ah, you correct yourself, the belief step. I mean, you correct yourself. You go, ooh, we were wrong about our hypothesis, and now we've had this new hypothesis, and you believe something new. You, you guess something new. It's, it's educated guessing. I'm not being unfair. It's, it's really a process, right, how it works. Um, and, and by the way, what's really funny about this is sometimes this is where I get discouraged whenever I find believers that are like rejecting all science or rejecting scientific methods and saying, oh, how could you? It's a matter of faith. I agree. Faith is important, but guess what? It's hard to not look at the world around us and see that God made us to be these little discovering beings. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's so difficult in education with children is that children love to learn until we force them to go to school. Then they don't like learning anymore. <laughs> and they quit school and they go out. Not all kids do. I know some kids love school. I'm not, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> But then they go out in the world and they discover things on their own and they learn because we learn. That's what we do. We learn. You make a mistake, you, you learn from your mistake, right? You have success, you learn from your success. You can even see that in the smallest people. Here's my favorite scientific experiment. I see it performed all the time. You're, you, you look around in your life, you're in a chair and you think some these people, these other beings that you're acting with have some relationship with you and you want to know what it is. And, and so you take your bowl of Cheerios and you drop it on the floor and you wait and you look and one of these large creatures comes over and picks it up and puts it back on your table and you go oh that's how that works but just to be sure you take your bowl of cereal and you slowly push it off the table this is any, any two-year-old or one-year-old in a high chair. What are they doing? How does the world work? And guess what? Parents are teaching them how many times we'll pick up your bowl of cereal before you will get in trouble. Or how long you cry in your crib before your parents come running. Or how much screaming that skin knee or lack of your preferred venue for worship has. We're all, we, it's a reality of our, of our nature to be that way, and that, that's the discouraging part when we say, no, 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 we're not, no, yeah, we are. We ought to test stuff. 
I remember one time um, I was uh, in, in line with someone at a potluck at, at uh, a church and we were talking about Christian life and I said, we ought to try it. And they said, well, why would you try that? And I said, because if it doesn't work, it's not true. <laughs> like something in our faith life. We should try doing that. And if it doesn't work, then this may not be true. We might misunderstand it. It doesn't work that way. Um, oh, look, I have... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, and I think I have it uh, on the screen as well. I do. Yeah, let me turn there, though. I don't want to turn. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. 5, 20 and 21. Yeah, I'm with you. No, mine, yeah, I know. I appreciate it. Yep. Check it out. I'm going to start in 16 just to mess y'all up. But, but you can look at what's on the screen, right? Be joyful always. Uh, pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Again, you might object and say, now wait a minute, they're talking about prophecies in the Holy Spirit, right? But here's what you, look, what you discover if you look into it. Prophecies is revealed knowledge right it's revealed knowledge in a moment about a time or a reality something that is true fundamentally true and in the middle of this kind of exhortation to the church in Thessalonica Paul's like don't put out the spirit's fire I have a question I wonder is the Holy Spirit involved in revealing the true functioning of our world to us do you think we've discovered all these things on our own with our pea brains or do you think that God has been revealing things to us it says, don't, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Do not, the only way you could probably say that is, do not treat revelations with contempt. Don't do that. Why would you, right? Instead, test everything. It's clear that the Apostle Paul believes that as believers ourselves, we ought to test things to see if they're good or bad. There might be a lot of things that we think, oh, that's of God, and it's not of God, right? But it doesn't mean we should throw out everything because we aren't willing to test it. And so we're encouraged. It says it right in the middle. That's a verse, by the way, of the Bible. Test everything. Test everything and keep the good. Don't do evil, right? There's a discovery uh, process. Why would, why would we talk about this? Here's the most amazing thing to me. I discovered this, again, in my educational process. Someone was teaching me, so I didn't find this on my own. And I, there's, this, there's this book called um, The Galileo Connection. And it tells the history of Galileo, right? Galileo discovered that the earth is not the center of the universe, which we all take to be scientifically true now, you know. And it got in the whole big mess with the church because the church said, no, our dogma says that the earth has to be the center of the universe. And everything else has to go around the earth. And, and you might think, well, this is an old problem, but even today there are people still having these arguments about how things really are, right? Practical reality of how things are. But here's the crazy thing, and I want to say this before we get on to the disagreements. Galileo was encouraged, discovery, and so many people that we respect, um, scientifically-minded people we respect, were encouraged in discovery and people of faith. They were curious about the world because God made it, but they weren't so self you know righteous to think that they didn't that god had nothing to do with it they just go wow and then the modern people say yeah but we outgrew those old fables listen they were pursuing truth because they believed god was in it matter of fact many times the church itself was funding these explorations the failure was when the explorations didn't line up with what the church 
had already believed. And the church is like, wait a minute. And they created kind of a false fight about this conflict. So it's not even fair to blame science for the science versus faith fight. The church did a great job of screwing it up all by ourselves. So those are some agreements. We should test stuff. And that discovery ought to be, um, uh, you know, uh, interesting to us. Now here's some disagreements, and, and we'll, we'll close with this. Uh, the purpose of revelation, the purpose of the revelation, because at, at best, scientists have to believe that any discovery they make is only for the immediacy, right? It's only for, for right now and in the future. It's like, at very best, linear. But it's an end unto itself. And, and, and I want to say, by the way, that I want to say some scientists, because here's the truth. I'm telling you, I know many people who are scientifically minded who are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not mutually exclusive concepts. But in their circles, they're told it's mutually exclusive, often told it's mutually exclusive. And I don't blame them, but they will often not then talk about their faith in those contexts because they don't want to be ridiculed by peers or have their careers limited. So they believe and they explore, and they, they withhold that part of their lives, right? But some scientists don't. They overtly say it's not compatible. Or at the very least, they say it's not necessary, right? Which, again, is probably a fair assessment to say that it's not necessary to believe in God to discover truth. But to say that the truth that's being discovered absolutely excludes God is not true. And that's where the epistemological humility fails on the side of science. They go too far. Not mad about that. This just seems to be the way it is. So, a scientist who would deny God or deny, deny the truth of God's reality contends not with us and not with our disagreement, but with God him, God's self. God, God's self. And that's what we believe. Now, th this comes from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1. So what's the purpose of Revelation, right? And uh, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 1, verses um, 18 through 20. And we're just going to read those verses. I'm going to read a little more than what's on the screen, but what's on the screen is the core of it all, I think. We have, I think we have two. Let me check. Yep. And so uh, the beginning and end. This is what the word says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what has been made, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. So the wickedness of men is not celebrating truth but in denying truth and it's called godlessness to deny the truth is godlessness suppressing the truth since what has been uh since what may be known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain now here's the second verse for since creation of the world god's invisible qualities his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse that's a lot of words Paul uses there but you know what he's saying I want you to break it down with me look at it it says God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature are revealed how are they revealed through what has been made you can clearly see then when you look at the world, God's divine nature and his eternal power. 
the eternal power. How is that possible, right? I mean, think about what we discover in the scientific realm. <laughs> like, DNA strands. That's crazy. Divine power. Uh, divine nature. The fact that it's like a, a, a knit, a knit together thing. It's like these little perfect pair things. I, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be. But you know what I'm saying? It ought to be like, wow, that's awesome. Look at that. Um, being understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. So we believe, now listen, here's the big, here's the thing. That the point of the scientific discovery ought to be to see God. To be in awe of the creator. The fundamental sin is to worship the creation and forget the creator. We're not going to talk about it. That's what the fundamental sin that comes up, though, is to go, wow, look at the stuff and forget the God that's in the stuff. He made the stuff. All the stuff is his. And so we disagree. We disagree with those who would deny God and say that God isn't at the root of scientific revelation um, because it's his purposes to reveal himself to everyone. But now here's the thing, so that they are without excuse, so that there's no way, no way, I heard someone uh, last night say it would take more faith to deny a God when you're looking at scientific facts than to affirm him. <laughs> like, you are way out of your league if you look at stuff and you're not like something else is going on here. I'm not saying that because I'm not a smart person uh, who wants to be. I'm saying that because that's what God says. He reveals himself in creation. And then the second that we disagree on. There's a requirement of faith. Um, I want to share with you uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse, I might actually have it up here. Let me see. Yeah, verse 1. Uh, now faith is being sure of things that we hope for and certain of things that we do not see. We know that verse, right? And you go, oh yeah, yeah, it's a life of faith. I get it, right? But it's my, but faith is being sure or confident of things that we hope for or sure of things we don't see. I want to say it this way. Now, faith is the substance, because that's what the, the, I dug into this, of things hoped for. It's the, the, the reality of the things that you hope for. And faith is the proof of the things that you can't see. And what's amazing to me about this question is that we often act like th this is, uh, we think that faith is required in life. You have to believe things. And I've seen this argument so many times, but we take that to be an invisible God or a God that we can't see with our eyes, you know, a God that you can't behold, that, that, that faith is, you know, God's doing good when even we don't see it in our lives, that, that there's some uh, altruistic purpose that we believe that on faith we just go yes because we believe God is good and when we live into those places in faith but the reality is that some of the things that we've been taught we have to take on faith and I know that some scientists will say yeah yeah but you can prove it you can prove it you can prove it right but you know I've been taught things in science like this isn't solid that this wooden stool is not solid that if you look close enough there's separation and you should be able to pass through this, but you can't. But my experience says it's solid, right? I believe that they're telling the truth, though. I do. 
I believe that they're telling the truth that there are light waves that come through the air that cause me to see, that reflect off of things. Let me see all of you. I believe that that's true. I believe it is true. I don't, but I don't see it. And they say, well, that's not that kind of faith, which is why they don't like the B word, believe. No, no, we don't, we don't believe things. And so some scientists would say they don't need faith, only the facts. But the truth is that they have to believe those facts to be true. That's the method. That's the method. I say that because then they go too far. And I'm not, again, here's, here's where we're going to end. We always allow for a decision, right? We always allow for a decision. This is the thing about the whole conversation, right? So we find some areas we can affirm, and we say, yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's good. And we ought not reject those things. But then we find areas where we don't agree, and we go, we just don't agree about that. But in the end, you get to decide. We leave room for a choice. This is the whole uh, um, reality that, that uh, I discovered in reading the book, The Galileo Connection, whenever I was going through school. And I actually read it a little bit in prep for today. But it doesn't really have these facts in there. This is really, if you want to borrow it, I'd be glad. I meant to bring it along. I'd be glad to loan it to somebody if you can read it. But it kind of t- talks about that idea that um, you have to decide. You have to use your own brain and think. And not just assume, oh yeah, that's right. The church was, you know, it's anti-scientific because they were after Galileo, you know. That therefore the gospel is not valid. Not true. It's not true. So we should affirm truth when it's revealed to, to us. And we should acknowledge our own limitations and understanding and we should allow others to decide um, ultimately what they're going to do with their life. So that means when we have conversations, I want to leave you with this, a practical application. When you have conversations, listen. Be slow to speak. <laughs> and quick to listen. Slow to become angry and go, well, tell me what the, how that works. You spent your lifetime investigating some minutia. Tell me how that works. And where we can affirm truth, affirm it. Oh, I, that, I get that. You know, I understand that. And then uh, acknowledge our limitations. We don't know everything, and we ought to learn from one another. But then at the end, know what you believe, and they have to make a decision. Everyone makes a decision. Here's another uh, opportunity this week. I'll give this to you as a task. Take some time this week and just um, observe things, the creation. Maybe say when you leave the service, I just take a second and look. Or maybe it's later this week. Maybe, we, maybe you know, it's, it's hunting season's coming. Maybe it's out in the woods hunting. Or maybe it's when you're at work and you're doing some really profound, you know, endeavor. I'm not saying that lightly. Um, observe the creation, the earth, the universe. And then ask, what do you believe about all this? What do we believe? that's the fundamental question pray with me uh, if you would father god we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to know you we thank you for your scripture that's revealed truth to us through the oral tradition and through your written word thank you for your creation that sings your songs of praise that wakes us in the morning that uh we do see the two lights go through the sky and we're amazed we discover new things all the time thank you for revelation Thank you for putting us in a galactic playground where we can just be cared for but also 
wonder at you. And Father, would you help us to um, engage in a genuine conversation with people and not be afraid, uh, to listen well, and to share your truth, but t to not, I mean, Father, that we would not dismiss things out of hand because we think we know everything. We don't. Uh, help us to have some humility about that. And Father, would you reveal grace? And what a tragedy it would be, Lord, to live in your world and observe the stars and the moons and uh, all the glory and put spaceships up in the sky and submarines in the deep and catalog animals and deny you. Huh. What a tragedy that would be, Father. Would you, by your grace, reveal truth and save your people? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.